Hey, good morning. I'm going to be preaching today out of Luke 7, 36 through 50, and John 12, 1 through 8. So just so you know, uh, this week, what we're doing, and, and ever since we've experienced this, uh, this shutdown, or, or whatever you want to call it, we as, mini- as ministry staff have divided up the names of our congregation, and, and we've been calling daily. Uh, and so you should get a phone call from one of us, if you haven't already, just checking on you. We're going to continue doing that since we can't be together physically. Uh, we're, co- we're still coming to the office. We're doing it in shifts so that we're maintaining that whole 10, or le- 10 people or less in the building at one time. And we're, ma- we're maintaining our social distance. We're doing everything we can. But uh, we're continuing to do ministry. What can you do? We're sending out a daily prayer email every morning so you can pray along with us over something different every single day. At the end of this worship service, Michael's going to lead us in a prayer together as a congregation. So you can, that's your daily prayer uh, emphasis for the day. Um, you can let us know how you're doing. Again, we're calling every day, but if, if you have a prayer need or if you're feeling bad, if you have something you need that we can help with, contact us and let us know. Uh, that's the only way we're going to find out. Um, contact us through a, a life group leader, through a deacon, through, uh, through one of our email addresses or calling the office. Um, also, check on somebody. This is an opportunity. Every single day we have an opportunity to be the body of Christ. So check on someone and see how they're doing. See what they need. See what you can share, how you can bless and brighten their day. Uh, it's tomorrow, check on somebody different, and the next day, someone different than that. But make sure you are doing all you can to be the body of Christ. So Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, and John 12, 1 through 8. The last time I was on an airplane, something interesting happened that I've never seen before. As I'm sitting there waiting for the plane to taxi down the runway and take off, I notice a guy in a chef's hat, I think they call it a, a toque, who's walking down the aisle taking orders uh, on a little pad of paper. And I got excited because I like good food. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Usually the the people coming down the aisle or the flight attendants with their little cart and they're asking you, do you want fish-flavored slop or beef-flavored slop? And and so to to see a guy in a chef's hat standing there taking orders made me think, well, this is going to be something special. This is going to be better food than usual. And then I realized, oh... That's first class. He's in the first class area, and I'm not. And sure enough, in just a few minutes, the flight attendant came along and drew that little curtain and separated us Gentiles from the Holy of Holies. And I'm not griping or complaining because I know those people paid a lot more than I did, and so I guess they're getting what they paid for. I'm just saying it's interesting, isn't it, that we can all be in the same place, breathing the same air, same kind of people, and yet we have very different experiences in that flight. And I say all that to say this. I didn't grow up in a family that was wealthy by any means. My dad had an important job, a job I'm proud of, but not a job that paid a lot of money. But in every other way, I, w- I grew up in what you might say was the first class of life. I had advantages that most other people didn't. Many of you can share that experience with me. I had parents who loved each other, who loved me, uh, who loved my brother. I had, uh, I had parents who went to church every Sunday and taught us the Christian faith, lived out authentically before us the, the faith of Jesus Christ. I had grandparents, both sets of grandparents, 
lived within a few minutes of me and were both still married, were both still alive and, and loved me. I had this whole army of adults, of coaches and teachers and, and Sunday school teachers and ministers and parents of friends and other adults who were invested in me and who would have gladly kicked my tail if I did the, did the wrong thing and were cheering me on when I did right. And so I had all the reason in the world to grow up and succeed. And I think about all the kids who grew up around me in my school who didn't have some of those advantages. Maybe, maybe they grew up in a single-parent home, or maybe they grew up in a home with addiction present, or with poverty, or uh, with abuse, or with uh, all sorts of disadvantages that I didn't have to deal with. I think about kids around the world who grew up at the same time as me, the same world, the same planet, but they grew up in a war zone. Or they grew up in a place where there was famine and pestilence. I grew up, or they grew up in a place where there was an oppressive regime and, and they didn't have freedom. You know, none of us deserved what we had. I didn't deserve to grow up in first class. They didn't deserve to grow up in the world they grew up in. We just, that's what we were born into. When you look at our world, you see the inequality. You see the disparity between those who have a lot and those who have a little. And that's part of the chaos of our world. And you might wonder, what is God doing about that? Well, that's, that's what our series is about right now. Since the beginning of the year, we've, had a, we've been in a series called His Story, talking about how God, from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, there's a, there's a consistent narrative thread that God is about redeeming this world, bringing peace to chaos. And every story in Scripture is that, that story in microcosm. We see every individual God deals with or every nation, every race, he is bringing peace to their chaos if they will allow. And that tells us that my story and your story, the story of our lives, can be a part of God's story if we'll let him work in and through us. And today we're going to look at peace to chaos in the story of, of two different women. Now, this, these are two stories that are so similar People often get them confused. People often think they're the same story, but they're not. And we're going to see how God deals with inequality and what God's answer is to that part of the chaos of his world. So Luke 7, 36 through 50 is our first story. And this takes place in Galilee, which is the region of Israel and the northern part of the nation where Jesus grew up, where Jesus spent most of his ministry and, and it starts in a dinner party held by, hosted by a man named Simon, who was a Pharisee. It says, one of the Pharisees asked, to eat, asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When he could not pay, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So there are three people in this drama. This is a three-person story. Jesus, of course, is one. The second is Simon the Pharisee. Now remember, Pharisees were not clergy. They weren't priests. They were ordinary laymen, but they were part of a group that was committed to making sure the people of Israel stayed true to the Word of God. Because 600 years earlier, the people of Israel had not stayed true to the Word of God, and they'd lost their nation. And they were devoted to making sure that didn't happen again. And that sounds like a very noble goal, and it was. But for the Pharisees, their answer was to try to be the morals police, as it were. And so they went around trying to identify sin and condemn people who were doing the wrong thing. So Simon, in inviting Jesus to his home, he wasn't being hospitable. He wasn't being nice. He was, in in essence, this was a job interview. He was evaluating Jesus as a possible Messiah or even as a prophet. And so Simon the Pharisee was not really open to Jesus being who he was. It was was him trying to judge Jesus and make a decision about him. So the third person in the story is not named. This is a woman who is just identified as a sinner. And what that means is that she was someone who was shunned by the the religious community, the establishment. This is someone who was not welcome in the local synagogue. And you might wonder why we're not told what her particular sin was, but religion hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years. Religious people, people who consider themselves the morals police, have not changed that much in the last 2,000 years. So whatever you think would get someone in trouble with that kind of person today was probably true back then too. And this woman comes into Simon's home, which, by the way, was not unusual in that culture. If you threw a party, it was considered basic hospitality to let anyone come in and help themselves to a plate of food. This woman comes into Simon's house and sees Jesus. And she does two things that are significant. First of all, she unbinds her hair. In that culture, for a woman to let her hair down in front of anyone but her husband was considered scandalous. She washes his hair with her feet, in essence. And and again, touching someone else's feet is something you just did not do. Even to this day in the Middle East, you don't touch someone else's feet. That's considered degrading to you to touch their feet. But she doesn't care. She doesn't care what she, how it looks or how she feels. Uh, she doesn't care what anybody thinks. All she cares about is this Jesus has forgiven me. And by the way, notice, she's not doing this to obtain forgiveness. You can tell that by the story Jesus tells. She's doing it because she has been forgiven. She is forgiven and therefore she is blessing the Lord. The second thing she does is she opens this bottle. Now Luke tells us about the bottle. And we have a picture of the kind of bottle this might have been, an alabaster bottle that was found uh, in ancient Cyprus. And, And what's significant about that, and the reason Luke tells us what kind of jar it was in, is because that kind of jar was opened by breaking the neck. The long, thin neck of the jar was broken. And so once you opened it and poured it out, it was gone. And so this woman 
pours out the most expensive thing she owns to anoint Jesus. Now, let's go back to Simon for a moment. He does the logic in his head. Remember, this is a job interview for him. He is evaluating Jesus. And right then he decides, okay, I know now this guy cannot be a prophet because a prophet is a man sent from God. And a prophet has the power of God to know people's hearts. And therefore, if he knows this woman is a sinner and he allows him to, her to touch him, then obviously he's not a prophet. Therefore, I can disregard Jesus. But Jesus hears him, hears his thoughts, and knows what's going on. So Simon is wrong from the get-go. Now let's go back and let me ask you the question. What if this woman had come to Simon instead of Jesus? When she came to the point in her life where she realized, I'm a sinner, I need salvation, I need change. What if she had gone to Simon as a religious authority and said, what can I do to be forgiven? What can I do to be changed? My guess is that Simon would have said, well, here's a list of things you can do to prove you are worthy to be welcomed back into the religious community. Here are a list of ways you can prove to us that you've really changed because that's the way religion works. Religion divorced from the gospel is all about putting burdens on those who are sinful so they can prove their worth. There was a movie that came out back in the 80s called The Mission. I'm sure not many of you have seen it. It wasn't a big hit. It was a little slow, a little artsy. But in the movie, there are two recognizable characters, two main characters. One is played by Jeremy Irons. He's a, a Spanish priest uh, in, the, uh, in South America in the 1700s. He's gone there to share the gospel with the natives in one of the Amazon jungles. And the second character is Robert De Niro. He plays a slave trader. So whereas the priest is trying to tell the natives about Jesus and win them to Christ, the slave trader is trying to abduct them and sell them into slavery. And so these two men are at odds, obviously, with each other. And at some point in the movie, De Niro's character gets angry with his brother and accidentally kills him. And he's filled with guilt. And so he goes to the priest at the church in the city and he says, I need to change. Can I be forgiven? And the priest, he says, here's how you will be forgiven. He takes this huge net and he puts all of De Niro's uh, armor and, and, and swords and other weapons inside the net and he ties it around De Niro's neck and he says, you have to drag this all the way out to our mission in the jungle and if you do that, you'll be forgiven. And so the next thing you see is the slave trader dragging this heavy burden through the forest, through the jungle, and he's getting it caught on things, and he's falling down, and he's getting exhausted. And when he gets within eyesight of the mission, the natives who have converted to Christianity look out, and they see him coming, and they recognize him as the man who has taken captive their brothers and sisters, their parents, their children, their friends, and they draw their knives, and they go running to him. And when they get to him, they cut, the, neck, they cut the, the net from his neck and it falls to the ground. Instead of killing him, they set him free. And De Niro collapses in tears at this unexpected forgiveness. And that's what Jesus does. See, religion, divorced from the gospel, puts a burden on those who are sinful and says, measure up, do the work, prove yourself. Jesus comes along and sets us free. That's what Jesus did for this woman, and that's why she's weeping, and that's why she is willing to offer him the most valuable thing she has. Now, the second story is very, very similar, but we see some key differences. It's found in John 12, 1 through 8. This one takes place, well, let's show you. Six days before the Passover, 
Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So right there, you see several differences. The first story was in Galilee in the northern part of the nation. This one is in Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem, right there on the Mount of Olives, right across the Valley of Kidron from the city of Jerusalem. It says that it's in the home uh, with some friends. The, the first story was in the home of an enemy, of an adversary. This, is, this story is in the home of friends. He's right there with his good friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And this, this takes place six days before the Passover. John tells us that, and we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the day when Jesus will go to the cross. So this is six days before the crucifixion. That, make, that means it's the night before Palm Sunday. Tomorrow morning, Jesus is going to wake up, get on a donkey's colt, and ride into Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley, and people are going to spread their blankets and their garments and their palm branches and declare him king And that's going to begin the worst week of Jesus's life. But right now he's having a dinner with friends. So we pick it up in verse two. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So, there are several differences we've already seen. Another difference, is, another difference in this story is John tells us what was in the bottle. It was something called nard. Nard is a plant that, that native grows in the Himalayas. So if you know anything about geography, that's a long way from Israel. And, and therefore, it's very expensive. Judas, we don't know how accurate he is, but he says it's worth 300 denarii. 300 denarii is the amount of money a, an average worker would make in a year. I did some research. Turns out that the average blue-collar worker in the United States makes $38,000 a year. Do you have anything in your home besides your house itself? Do you have anything in your home that's worth $38,000 a year? I don't. Probably the most valuable things I own are my two cars, and put together, those don't equal $38,000 on the open market. If you own anything worth that much, you keep it under lock and key. You keep it well guarded. Mary, on the other hand, takes it and pours it out on Jesus. Now, Mary, again, this is a three-person drama, just like the first story. Jesus is the first person. Mary is the second. And Mary is very, very dissimilar. She is nothing like the woman in the first story, the sinful woman who's not even named in Luke 7. We know this because she's one of Jesus's close friends. Spiritually speaking, she's flying in first class. The other woman is flying at the back end of coach. We know this also because there's a story earlier in the Gospels about uh, Jesus and another dinner party with these three. He's actually in their home in the first story. Uh, Jesus is there and Martha is cooking for the disciples and for Jesus and she's working hard to serve them. And she gets angry because her sister Mary's not helping her. And she says, Jesus, tell my sister to get in the kitchen and help me with this. And Jesus says, listen, Martha, you're doing a great job and I appreciate it, but Mary's doing what's more important. She is spending time at my feet. She's listening to my teaching. She is enjoying my presence while she can. Mary is someone who for a long time has known who Jesus is. 
And now she takes this bottle and she breaks the neck and she pours it out. This this bottle that is worth $38,000 adjusted for inflation. She pours it out. Why? Well, Jesus tells us. The third person in our story is Judas Iscariot. And we know a lot about him, but this is one of the few stories we read about him that reveals his character before his betrayal. Judas criticizes Mary for what she's done. And Jesus says something that's a little hard for us to understand. He says, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What he's saying gets a little lost in translation going from Hebrew to Greek to English. But what he's basically saying is, she's been saving this for the day that I die. And that day is near now. And so she's anointing me for my burial. Somehow Mary of Bethany understood something that none of his male disciples understood that Jesus was about to die, and he was about to die for her. And so in advance, she is thanking him. In advance, she's saying, because you're going to do this for me, here's the best thing I can do. Here's the best thing I have to offer for you. And the second thing he says that people often get wrong is this famous statement, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And I sometimes hear Christians take that statement out of context to say, well, Jesus said we'll always have the poor, so there's no reason for us to even try to alleviate poverty. And that's so wrong. That's, that, that totally misses the point of what Jesus was saying. First of all, there are over 2,000 verses in Scripture that tell us to take care of the poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, that God will hold us accountable. I mean, think about the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me. But second of all, what Jesus is saying is not, well, because there's always going to be poor people don't take care of them. After all, the Bible very clearly teaches that we'll always be sinful until Jesus comes back. But no religious person ever goes around saying, well, we'll always be sinners. So just go ahead and sin all you want. What Jesus is saying is you'll be able to take care of the poor every day you are alive on this earth. But Mary understands I'm not going to be here with you for much longer. The message for you and me is worship Jesus whenever, however you can. Don't miss that opportunity. So let's think about these two women, the sinful woman and Mary. What did they do? They gave to Jesus the best they had. They offered it up. They poured it out, holding nothing back. They did what seems extravagant, what seems wasteful, but they did it joyfully. And if you're listening right now, if you're watching right now, if you can hear me, There are many of you who've made that decision as well. At some point in your life, and it may not have been the day you got baptized, it may not have been the day you prayed the prayer of salvation, but at some point in your life, you wrote Jesus a blank check. You said, Lord, my heart, my soul, my all is yours. Whatever whatever you ask me to do, I will do. Wherever you tell me to go, I will go. My life is no longer my life. I'm giving it to you. And you did that with joy. You did that because of what he'd done for you on the cross. And if we're honest, some of us who made that decision at some point in our lives, later on, we came back and said, okay, God, I'm taking that back. Because there are decisions I want to make on my terms. There there are things I want to do that you wouldn't want me to do. And so I'm going to do things my way for a while and maybe I'll come back to you. And if that's you, today's a great day to come to Jesus and say, I'm coming back and I'm returning to you everything that I have. And I want to be yours for whatever time I have left. There are others of you watching, I sure hope others of you are watching, who've never made that decision yet. And you've never given the Lord your everything. 
And you might be wondering, why should I? See, the fear a lot of us have is if I give God everything, maybe he'll ask something of me that I don't want to give. If I offer Jesus a blank check, maybe he'll take me a place I don't want to go. Maybe he'll take away from me something I don't want to give up. Maybe he'll, he'll, he'll force me to be a missionary in some horrible place or even worse, the pastor of a Baptist church. That was a joke. I hope someone got it. Uh, I, I'm afraid that he'll take things away that I don't think I can live without. But I think it's significant that one of Jesus' shortest parables is found in Matthew 13, 44, and it talks about when we give ourselves fully, we get back joy. Matthew 13, verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, listen to these three words, then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. See, in the story, the man sells all of his possessions because he knows that if he buys this field, he's going to get back a treasure far greater than anything he'll give up. And Jesus says that's what salvation is like. That's what it's like when you give your whole self to the kingdom of God, to my Father. You get back far more than you give up. And I shared this a few weeks ago on our weekly devotional, uh, our, our, our first moments devotional. So some of you have heard this story already, but I'm going to share it again. When I was in high school, uh, my first vehicle that I drove when I was 16 was an old farm truck that we just had sitting around. And, and so that's what I drove. Had a three-speed transmission with a shift on the steering column. Some of you don't even know that existed. It was not a fancy vehicle. One of my friends called it my battle wagon. Um, but when I was a senior in high school, my dad came home from work one day and he said, hey, the credit union just repossessed a, an 86 Camaro and they're taking bids on it. Do you want to bid on it? He knew that I'd been in 4-H since I was nine and I'd been saving up all the money that I'd, that I'd earned from selling animals at the stock show every spring. And I said, sure. So I bid everything that was in my bank account for that car. And lo and behold, I was the only one who bid, so I got the car. I was amazed. So I went from driving the battle wagon to this beautiful silver Camaro, this incredible sports car. Let me tell you, that changed my image. That changed the way girls looked at me. And I did not mind that at all. I would drive down the highway and I'd drive past my friends. I'd drive past people my age and they would just watch me go. And I felt, I felt like a million bucks. Now, a little over a year later, I met Carrie. I met the woman who would someday be my wife. And she lived about an hour away from campus. And so every Friday, as soon as class was over, I'd get in my silver Camaro and drive an hour to her house. And then every Saturday, once I was up and had had breakfast, I'd make that trip again. And then every Sunday morning, even though I'd been out late with her the night before, I'd get up early so I could make that drive to get there in time for Sunday school at her church. That was every weekend, three times a week, at least I was making that trip. And I, was, I drove fast because I was eager to get there and Houston traffic is rough. So I, you're probably not surprised to find out that after three years of this, that car was a piece of junk. It was barely running. So in essence, I gave everything I had to get this car, and then I gave up that car to spend time with her. And yet, I did it joyfully. She didn't ask me to come out three times a weekend. I'm sure her parents were wondering, why is this guy around every weekend? 
I wanted to be there. I did it joyfully. And that's, that to me is a, a picture of what it means to give yourself fully to Christ. When you give yourself fully to Christ, anything he asks you to give up, you get joy in return. It doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. It means everything we get, as he said, anything you give up for me, you receive back hundredfold. So you give it up with joy. And that's what this woman did. That's what Mary did. She poured out her life. She poured out her security. Think about Think about a woman who's living day-to-day in poverty and she owns something that's worth $38,000 adjusted for inflation. Think about the security she's giving up and yet she does it with joy. So let's go back to these two women. We live in a world of extreme injustice where some people are living in first class and some people in economy. And here are two women. One, a woman so marked by her sin, she's not even allowed to worship God. And another, so close to Jesus that they share close moments. She and her family are are, are intimate friends with him. So close to Jesus, Jesus has already publicly praised her for her righteousness. One woman in first class, one woman in coach, and yet notice that in the story, both of them come to Jesus in the same way. And what a great image for the fact that at the cross, At the foot of the cross, the ground is absolutely level. I'm a a pastor of a wonderful church, a church with a great name. I, I have this incredible privilege to do what I do, and yet it takes the same amount of grace for me to come before Jesus as it does the prisoner or the prostitute. The ground is absolutely level. Jesus is the one who solves the injustice. The gospel of Jesus is the one that solves the injustice of our world. He is bringing ultimate redemption, and we don't necessarily see it now because in many ways it seems that injustice is not being addressed, but it is. And we as a church have a responsibility to stay close to the gospel so that we treat people who we meet the same way, whether they are wealthy or poor, whether they are are seemingly outwardly righteous or whether they're seemingly outwardly sinful, we treat them the same way if we remember the gospel. And as individuals, as individuals, we, we remember every day we need grace to get by. And if we remember that, if we confess our sins to God every day, if we call upon the gospel for his grace every day, we don't judge others. We don't look down on people who sin in ways that are different than our sins. Jesus is ultimately bringing redemption. The world will be a level-grounded world. This is very clear. In Revelation 7, John gets a vision of what the world's going to be like after Jesus returns. And here's what he says. After this I looked, and behold... A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This vast multitude from every race, tribe, nation, and tongue, all standing together praising God. That's our future. Our future is a world where everyone is in first class, where everyone has access to the Father, where there are no divisions. So here's my question. Why don't we just start living that way now? We can't change the world all on our own, but we can change it one soul, one heart, one family at a time as we live according to the gospel.